like to welcome you again to Prairie View. Thanks for being here with us this morning. Last week, Jesus met a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was curious about Jesus. And unlike many of his fellow Pharisees, Nicodemus appears to have had a certain admiration for Jesus. Nicodemus acknowledged that Jesus was clearly a teacher come from God. But was that enough for Nicodemus to see the kingdom of God? Was that enough for him to be given the right to become a child of God? Was respecting Jesus or liking Jesus enough to save Nicodemus? The answer is no. Because Jesus says something deeper, something more profound, something more transformational must occur in Nicodemus's life. He said Nicodemus must be born again. Nicodemus needed God to change him from the inside out. He needed a new heart. He needed a new mind. He needed new eyes to see the kingdom of God. He needed a miraculous rebirth driven by the Holy Spirit to change him from sinful rebel opposing God to holy child of God. The same is true of you and me. Now, the bad news is that we can't make the change needed to become children of God. We can change habits, we can change attitudes and appearances and words, but we can't change our own hearts. But the good news is that God can. In fact, he's in the very business of giving dead people new life by his Holy Spirit. God is all too willing to breathe new life into dry, dusty bones, like you and I once were. And this new life all revolves around Jesus. Now, today we see another conversation that gets this point across, but the person that Jesus talks to has nothing in common with Nicodemus. And what we learn is that it's their communities, people who know their Bibles really well, people the right to become a child of God. This invitation to see the kingdom of God, this gift of new life by the Holy Spirit is not just for people like Nicodemus. It's offered to and understood by People who, verse 1, feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home with you. Let's pray together as a church family. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you again for the families we celebrated a few moments ago. I pray that you would watch over those parents, watch over those children. And Father, thank you for this time that we have to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, in spite of our differences, in spite of our different baggage that we bring in, our experiences that we've been through, um, whatever attitude we're in, whatever kind of mood we have right now. uh, Thank you that we can gather here together as family and hear from your word and worship you through song and take communion and pray. Thank you for this privilege. Thank you for the kids in the service with us this morning. I pray that this would be beneficial for them to see us worshiping you. And, and see us pouring out our hearts and, and, and just giving ourselves over to you during this time. So, Father, be with us today as we hear from your word. Give us minds that are open. Give us hearts that are open. Give us ears to hear what it is that you have to say to us. We love you. We thank you for your church. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for Christ. And we ask all of these things in his name. Amen. All right, John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. 
Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So the story starts out relatively uneventful. As Jesus's ministry grows, the Pharisees begin to notice. And Jesus isn't interested in getting himself in too much trouble with the religious leaders, at least not yet. So they pack up and head to Galilee. But in order to go from Judea to Galilee, they pass through the Samaritan town of Sychar. The sixth hour is right about noon when the heat is most unbearable. So Jesus decides to stop at a well and get a drink while the disciples replenish their food supplies in the city. A woman walks up to the well and Jesus tells her to get him a drink. Again, at first glance, this doesn't really seem too remarkable, does it? But if you look closer, there are some details here that make this story a little bit abnormal. For example, we're in Samaria. I mean, did Jesus really have to pass through Samaria? The reason I ask that is that some Jews would go out of their way to avoid Samaria, even if it extended their trip. If nothing else, many Jews would at least wait to stop until they got to the next exit. Because Jews and Samaritans don't see eye to eye. There was a long-running and complicated dispute between these two groups of people. Most Samaritans viewed themselves as the true faithful remnant of God's people from the Old Testament, while the rest of God's people, the Israelites, they went off the rails a long time ago. Most Jews viewed the Samaritans as unfaithful, disowned, maybe even illegitimate children who abandoned the truth about God a long time ago. It may have been because they got too cozy with the Assyrians while the rest of the northern kingdom was in exile. It may have had to do with political and military alliances in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But one thing we do know for sure is that the Samaritans and the Jews disagreed in matters of religious practice. Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as scripture. They had an independent priesthood at one time, separate from the Israelites. They didn't worship at the temple in Jerusalem. They worshiped on Mount Gerizim instead. We'll come back to that in a moment. But regardless of the past events that led to this division, quite simply, in the words of theologian Taylor Swift, baby, now they got bad blood. And yet here we see Jesus asking a Samaritan for a drink. That's weird. That is not normal. Another detail that makes the story less than normal is that Jesus would not just ask a Samaritan for water, but that he would ask a Samaritan woman for water. Many Jews viewed Samaritan women as perpetually unclean. 
They may not have minded being around her, but they're certainly not going to drink from a cup that she's handled. That would make them religiously unclean themselves. And finally, what makes this story strange is the overall atmosphere that Jesus meets this woman in. Why is this woman all alone? Normally, women would travel in groups to go get water. And not only that, why is she getting water at noon? And that day, women would get water in the morning or in the evening when it was much cooler outside. We're starting to get the sense that maybe, just maybe, this woman is a little bit of a loner. Maybe even a little bit of an outcast. Now, she knows that Jesus asking her for water is unorthodox, to say the least. She knows just as well as Jesus that this whole conversation is breaking some unwritten rules. So look at her response in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So in spite of her somewhat guarded response, Jesus continues speaking with this Samaritan woman. And he's talking about spiritual things, but like Nicodemus last week, The Samaritan woman just doesn't get it. How can Jesus offer her water? I mean, he doesn't even have a bucket, and Jacob's well was likely a hundred feet deep. I mean, does this guy think that he has some kind of special powers or something? Is he some kind of magician? Who does he think he is? But the water that Jesus is talking about isn't at the bottom of Jacob's well. It's a very different kind of water that comes from a very different source and offers a very different kind of nourishment. The water that Jesus offers becomes a spring welling up to eternal life. Well, now she's at least listening, and yet she still doesn't get it. When she hears that she will never thirst again after drinking the water that Jesus provides... She's just picturing no more lonely, sweaty trips to the well. Like the Jews who didn't understand Jesus' words about the temple in chapter 2. And like Nicodemus who didn't understand Jesus' words about being born again in chapter 3. This woman is thinking on a purely natural level. Like the preacher in Ecclesiastes, she's focusing on what's under the sun. While Jesus is giving her heavenly truths. But the conversation continues. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, 
and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus sees that things just aren't quite clicking for this woman. So he decides to get a little more personal. He exposes her as somewhat of a mess. She's been through lots of marriages, and she now has someone she's not married to. She's different from Nicodemus in just about every way you can imagine. Man versus woman, Jew versus Samaritan, revered by his community versus looked down by her community, pious versus morally questionable. One person's got it all figured out, and one person has a life in disarray. Now, she doesn't take Jesus' words as an attack. She admits that Jesus is right, and she's starting to see that Jesus is not just some ordinary traveler. She even calls him a prophet. And you know, it's not every day that a Samaritan woman gets a one-on-one conversation with a prophet. So she asks a question. She goes back to that dispute we mentioned a little bit earlier. Who worships in the right place? Jerusalem, Mount Gerizim. Jews, Samaritans. She poses the theological question that Jews and Samaritans have debated for years. Who really worships God the right way? Now, Jesus doesn't completely sidestep her question. He acknowledges that up to that point, God has always worked through Israel to accomplish his purposes in the world. However, he also shows her that her question isn't all that important these days. Because a new chapter in God's story of redemption has dawned. And in this new chapter, where you worship isn't the focus. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, that's not the focus either. What matters most is that she worship God in spirit and truth. In other words, that she give God the kind of worship that God deserves. And after this long conversation, as Jesus is slowly but surely revealing who he might actually be, he comes out and says that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. So through Jesus, God is offering living water to a world and to people dying of thirst. God is inviting people to drink of this water, to find new life and thus become true worshipers in spirit and in truth. We see previews of this in the Old Testament. Consider Jeremiah chapter 2 verses 11 through 13. We read there. 
Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah condemns the Israelites for false worship, for abandoning God, the one true source of life. But then look at Isaiah 55, starting in verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Jeremiah chapter 2 is a condemnation of false worship. But Isaiah 55 is a call to repentance, a call to return to God, a call to return to true worship. And it's not just the Israelites condemned by their false worship in need of repentance and returning to true worship. That's the truth about all of us. Every single one of us has been guilty of worshiping the wrong things. Loving the wrong things, wanting the wrong things. And all that stuff that we worship, all that stuff that we love, all that stuff that we want, it only leaves us parched like those dry bones in Ezekiel 37. What have you turned to in an effort to quench your thirst? Wealth? Success? Independence? Power? Sex? Activism? Family? How have those things worked out for you? Are you still thirsty? Some of those things can be good, but none of them can truly quench the eternal thirst that sinful humans like us have. But the beauty of the gospel is that sinful humans like us are invited to repent of our sin, invited to be given new life, invited to become true worshipers. And Jesus shows us that even a less than righteous Samaritan is invited. Because this chapter is not about Jerusalem versus Mount Gerizim. Where's the right place to worship? This chapter is not about Jews versus Gentiles or Jews versus Samaritans. This chapter all revolves around him. Now, when the disciples finally enter the picture in verse 27, they're just as surprised by Jesus's actions as the Samaritan woman was at the very beginning of the passage. And meanwhile, the woman doesn't even care about her initial reason for coming to the well. She drops everything and goes to tell anyone who will listen about the man she just met. A crowd begins to form, and any time a crowd of Samaritans forms around a crowd of Jews, 
the disciples might be a little bit on edge. They're probably wondering how this town of Samaritans will possibly respond to Jesus. Could anything good come out of this? Well, that's what we see in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. So at first, the Samaritans are amazed by the woman's claims. They're so amazed that they're even willing to show hospitality to a Jewish teacher, which in that day may have been somewhat surprising. And then in one final surprise of the passage, we see that a town full of Samaritans, sinful, unfaithful, illegitimate, they would recognize the Messiah before a holy, faithful, and legitimate Pharisee did. Someone like, say, Nicodemus. Now, anytime we read scripture, a good question to ask ourselves is this. What does this passage tell me about God? And then further, what does this passage tell me about humanity? What does this passage say about me? Well, I think we have a few things in John chapter 4. Number one, God's grace can reach those people that we're often tempted to write off. Just last week, we read John 3.16. God so loved the world that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. We read that Jesus did not come just for a certain kind of person, a certain class of people, or a certain race, or a certain nationality. Jesus came for the world. All kinds of people. Now, we might assume that some people will respond to the gospel, and some people won't. And sometimes we're right, but sometimes we're not. What we see is that true worshipers come from all over. And that often includes the people that we least expect. Another thing we learn is that only God can offer living water. Like last week's example of new birth, we need living water that only God can give. We need God to change us from the inside out. He's the one who does the heavy lifting. He's the one who gives us the right to become children of God. And thirdly, we learn that when it comes to an encounter with Jesus, we don't always get it right away. Part of what's so great about this passage is Jesus' patience with the woman. When she doesn't fully understand his words, he doesn't just give up on her. He doesn't just shoo her away. He gently helps her along in discovering the truth about who he is. God was patient with you when you didn't understand. God was patient with me when I didn't understand. So I pray that we would be patient when others don't understand either, when we're doing everything within our power to tell them who Christ is. Now, there's one more passage to look at in closing. We skipped over verses 31 through 38, so let's turn there. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. 
So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Just like the Jews in chapter 2, and just like Nicodemus in chapter 3, and just like this Samaritan woman in chapter 4, even the disciples don't fully understand what Jesus is talking about. They think that he's snuck in some food in his cloak. That's not what Jesus is talking about at all. 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say... There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored. And you have entered into their labor. If you want to see the perfect example of a true worshiper, someone who worships in spirit and in truth, look at Jesus in verses 31 through 38. Because Jesus says that he gets more sustenance from obeying the will of God than from physical food. Obedience to God is more life-giving to him than bread. Jesus would rather starve than disobey God. And taking it a step further, we see in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus would rather be crucified than disobey God. That's true worship. That is worship in spirit and in truth. And yet, this one true worshiper The one person who fully, perfectly, and truly worshiped God at every single moment. He dies for false worshipers. Like you and like me. And because of his death and his resurrection, we don't have to remain that way. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can become true worshipers little by little, more and more each day. As God continues to work in our hearts and minds. And all along, we look forward to worshiping God and his presence in eternity. In spirit and in truth. The harvest is here. And in this new chapter of God's story, God has done and is still doing the hard work. The heavy labor. He offered his son on the cross. And Jesus obeyed. The Holy Spirit is still working in hearts and minds at this very moment. Every single time the cross is preached. Every single time the word is opened. And people like you and me, sinful, imperfect people like that Samaritan woman, we get to be reapers. We get to participate. We get to go out and have conversations like Jesus had at that well with people like that Samaritan woman. And we have these conversations and we preach the gospel knowing that our labor is not in vain, knowing that the gospel bears fruit, knowing that living water is welling up into eternal life in the hearts and minds of unbelievers. We know that the gospel bears fruit. So as we leave here this morning, may we leave here as true worshipers. May we leave here as reapers, knowing that our labor For the gospel 
because of the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of Christ is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are at work in this world. That here we are 2,000 2000 years later, and yet you are still offering living water to sinful people. So, Father, I pray that we would be grateful for the living water that you've given us as believers. That there is a spring welling up into eternal life in our hearts and in our minds. But, Father, I also pray that we would go out into this world and view it as a harvest. I pray that we would be reapers, that we would be faithful in doing our responsibility, which is simply to proclaim your word, proclaim your son, tell anyone who will hear, and trust that you can do the heavy lifting from there. Thank you for your son who died, the perfect, true worshiper, dying for false worshipers like us. But thank you that you're making us into true worshipers. And we look forward to the day when, when that's complete and we can be in your presence in eternity, worshiping you for eternity in spirit and in truth. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.